Welcome to Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered with Perry Clark. This program looks at mental health from unique perspectives and shows you how to manage your life by finding the knots that help you and stay away from the ones that could be a disadvantage. Now, here is your host, Perry Clark. Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered. This is Perry Clark, licensed marriage and family therapist here with you. I want to remind everyone that this podcast is for entertainment and educational purposes and that you should seek out a mental health professional in your area to work on your unique issues. So this is continuation of part two of the conversation I've been having with Tara Avery and Juan Metz. Uh, we're going to continue talking a bit more about the 1001 Black Portraits of Men, as well as the aspects of uh some of the projects that are coming up, how some interesting names came about, and in with our usual question about mental health myths and realities. So I'm going to forego rereading the uh, bios again, but why don't we go ahead and start, Tara? I know that there's a bunch of projects that you wanted to talk about that we want to have people know about as we move further from there. Well, we have um, you know, some upcoming uh, upcoming projects, a couple of which are are parts of the series that SDP has been uh, working on for several years now. Um, we have the LGBTQ uh, historical coloring book series. We're going to throw a P in there because we have the polyamory coloring and activity book coming up soon. I'm working on the cover right now, and the rest of it will be um, organization and and uh, and compilation. Uh, but we have uh, licensed family and marriage therapists and PsyDs contributing exercises and information for those of you who want to uh, want to have multiple partners but aren't quite sure how you just pick up your crayons and and let the let the crayola do the walking um we also have uh, uh the fifth volume in our all ages series about a transgender night of the round table and um, the, the night is named Cologrenant or cali as uh, she is more colloquially known and it has certain amount of literary provenance because it is derived from an actual Arthurian romance from, I believe, the 13th century, if I'm not mistaken. Um, uh, the author cartoonist behind that, Gillian um, Cameron, was much, that's more, that's more her department than mine, so I, I don't want to speak too much to that, but we'll be have, having volume five in the saga of Cologrenant, uh, and, uh, and how, and how does a uh, how does a, 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 someone who appears to be a young maiden make it as a knight in Arthur's Britain? Um, and then uh, we will also be doing um, uh, a very special book, a collection of mini comics from a New Zealand cartoonist named Richard Fairgray called Ghost Ghost about the, the unfortunate um, yet somehow adorable demise of a young boy and his, uh, his, his rather rather surprising afterlife. So um, Ghost Ghost was actually based on a story that he originally conceived of at age seven and um, he turned it into a proper mini comic series in his 20s and it became one of the more popular items that he had uh, in New Zealand before he made the leap across across the water across at least two different ponds he has uh, had lots of success in China and now he's ready to, to take to take down the United States as well very nice so those are all things that you can find on the stacked media press. Yep. So definitely check those links out and for to be able to read that and uh, get those coloring books. Cause they can, even if you don't go into those things, you can have fun coloring them. That, that is a good stress reliever. And I very much support that as a therapist. 
So, Awana, how did you get up with Aid Rock as your non de plume? Oh, well, you know, um, when I started getting really interested in being part of these super cool people I met at the Zine Fest, I thought, okay, you know, I live in the Bay Area, and the Bay Area is famous for um, its street art, um, you know, from murals to sticker culture, and I really wanted to be a part of that. And I thought, well, I need a pseudonym. I'm going to do this under the cover of night. I'm going to make portraits and i'm going to stick them up on the walls with wheat paste none of that ever happened but um i needed a pseudonym and um and you know as an african-american person and scholar i wanted to find a name that was really affirming and so zora neale hurston's um uh glossary of harlem slang listed eight rock as slang for a very black person and i thought that's me i am a very black person love black culture history um i am black (laughs) So I picked Eight Rock as my name to kind of just uh, affirm that. Um, and so I've, I've stuck with it ever since. Also, it wasn't something that other people were using. So that helped too. Um, and it's literary. And, you know, mm. my PhD is in English. So I always, that's one of my areas for geeking out. <laughs> Very nice. So one of the things we're talking about, because as those who've listened to part one, this all came about because we were all at, San Diego Comic-Con this last couple of months ago. And this is how we made connections and we're talking about materials and the experiences we had being on panels, what we were talking about. But we're specifically here to talk about your book called 1001 Black Men, Portrait of, of Masculinity at the Intersection. And in our first half, we talked, and I read some of the four words and we talked about a section on nerds. We're next going to talk about another section of the book called The Elder Statesman. Now, before we go in there, I'm going to read another section from the forewords that was done by Sean Taylor. And this section goes, when you're representing blackness, you open yourself up to two distinct types of criticism. Are you reinforcing anti-black stereotypes? Will you experience anecdotes? Will your experience and presentation of blackness parallel the black experience of other black folks? What uh, Awanja Mance does so masterfully is to devour the second point. I'm hesitant to call her work unapologetically black. Blackness is not a thing one should, should apologize for. A Thousand and One Black Men is undeniably black. It is a blackness untranslated. If you don't get it, you don't get it. Mantis inscribes the emotional and postural nuance of blackness into her subjects. She illuminates the lean, the smirk, the raised eyebrow, the head tilt, and all the joyful nonverbals that make up blackness and maleness as its wonderful, or sorry, wondrous takes up space. She presents us publicly how we operate in private. Her work invites us, Black men, to just be who we are and where we are, with all the considerable styles and flavor that the world routinely tries to destroy. And that was Sean Taylor, a senior fellow pop culture contributor, uh, Black the Nerds of Color, and Black Comics Art Festival. And the section we're talking about here is the elder statement, because there's also the standpoint of one of the one of the realities is that we are have seen a lot of the world and seen a lot of how it changed, and also the hopes that we have for the future as we are normalizing the material that we have here. 
to be able to share, such as we talked in the first half about Tara and your adventures with being able to go to the flyover states and bring LGBT and trans material there. The same thing is here. We're also looking at dealing with generations that have also dealt with some of the greatest, some of the greatest turbulence and fought for some of the greatest turbulence in the uh, what section is called the elder statement. And I know in this section, you have interviews with Graylin Thornton and Raymond Hulbert. So how did this section come into, come into existence? I, um, I found myself, um, you know, in some ways, this book is a retrospective look back at the process of six and a half years of looking at Black men, but also learning how to navigate my growing sense of accountability as time went on. Um, there are certain constituencies of Black men that I just gravitated towards in terms of people I wanted to draw, um, people I wanted to photograph, um, um, and uh, for later portraits. Um, and black, old Black men was was one of them. I think probably because um, old Black men had been a you know were a part of my life, but also you know just um, the notion that if you're an old Black man, um, say in the 2000s, you're 60, 70, 80 years old. And, you know, as I approach 60, I think that's actually not that old. But um, uh, you've seen a lot. You've seen a lot of transformation in society and, um, you know, going from your hypervisibility to a lack of visibility and mm -hmm. a lack of regard for your survival. And um, and I I wanted to reflect that if no one else sees um, old black men, um, I do. Um, you know, certainly people within the black community have a reverence for black elders, but outside of that community, not so much. And so, um, you know, I also love drawing lines and, you know, gray hair, of which I have quite a lot these days. Um, you know, and the idea that written on someone's body is their experience, is what they've seen, what they have, their joys the things that have not been so joyful, but that they've survived. Um, you know, it's, it's in some ways, it's my kind of love letter to black elders for, mm -hmm. um, you know, my gratitude for paving the way for being there for me to see them and be inspired um, that, you know, yeah, you can do this. Very nice. Very nice. So your interviews in this was with Graylin Thornton and Ray Halbert uh, as it is. Uh, <laughs> I happen to know Graylin. We're both members oh. of the same leather organization, oh, Onyx wow. Men. So, yes. So, yeah. Oh, cool. Uh, cool. Yes, we do know each other here. So, let me just read a couple of sections that come up from, from that as well. Uh, I'm going to start with this section here with Ray. Or, sorry, with Raymond. He said, I had all kinds of influences from family to teachers. They are some of the people who were influences, influences in my life, but have no idea that they were. For instance, there are friends of my parents, people who were interested in art and design and some church folks. I wasn't really active in the church, but I respected everybody who was. Art teachers were also role models for me. I remember my first art teacher very well. I can remember an elementary school teacher who drove a Jaguar the, that inspired my first car, which was an Austin Herling. He was what you might call a sculptor in those days but i was a little too young to understand what his life was like you think about people like him later they become influences because their memories stay with me 
And then we have a section from Graylin, who in this section, uh, he says, then in the gay community, I've had a number of leathermen who were early on really looking out after me and grooming me to be the person I am today. Some of them were men of color and some were not, but most of them were gone are, are gone now. I pay homage to them every time I can, because when I was young, when I was young leatherman, I always had these men looking out for me. I jumped in into the scene in 1986 when I joined my first leather club and it goes on from there, but I think that's a good spot. But that nature of how is the elder generation watching for the younger generation? We're not just whether it's for black, but all BIPOC as well as all LGBT and trans thoughts, both of you there. Yeah. Well, I guess I guess I'm kind of older generation now, you know. Um, <laughs> not not in addition to sort of transitioning relatively late. I you know, didn't trans, start transitioning until about 36. Um, but yeah, I'm I'm the older trans now. I'm I'm you know, and I'm the one who uh, I'm the oldest one on every every panel. I've just about every panel I've been on in recent <laughs> years. Um, um, so I. They expect me to know things that I really don't know. <laughs> <That's>, <laughs> but, uh, you know, the, the object is to, um, you know, I, I don't know, impart any wisdom that you might have been, you might have blundered your way into, usually by making mistakes and, and, uh, and, and show the support of the younger folks. Um, you know, and, you know, that's, that's sort of been my, my experience with that. But yeah, that, like, what was I, this is just another observation. Uh, this is a few years ago. Uh, I was, we were at Queer Comics Expo in San Francisco in the Bay Area. And um, Nina uh, was one of the organizers of the event at that time. And uh, uh, she introduced me as part of a discussion of some, this is Tara. She's been making queer comics forever. And I was like, I, yeah, I don't know. You know maybe like for not even 10 years now, but yeah, sure. Forever, whatever. I mean, does that, that seems like forever to some people, the younger folks, that seems like forever, you know, it's like kind of have to sort of keep your, you know, re- you know remember the person, you know, adjust your perspective. I guess. So, mm-hmm. There we have it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. I, um, I think that, uh, you know, for me, um, you know, across genders, you know, black elders, um, you know, show me how it's done, um, that it can be done. Um, mm-hmm. I've had a lot of black elders, um, in my family, uh, particularly on my mother's side, you know, people, you know, uh, in their eighties, nineties, you know, I have a great grandmother and a great aunt, both of whom her daughter, both of them live to be 99. Um, um, a great aunt whose parents who was born just at the edge of, just after slavery ended and I actually met her um, and she was 99 back in like the 1971. And, um, you know, just these folks um, navigating this world and knowing that how they experienced blackness and racism was really intense in a different way than what I was experiencing. Um, You know, I just think that um, it means so much for me as a person of relative you know, privilege, you know, my parents were both educators there, my, my grandmother and great-grandmother were all teachers, but for me to see what it was, you know, the embodiment of what it has been like to persist and survive over time is very, very meaningful, and so I can only imagine that it is similar for other people of African descent, 
And so when I thought about, um, you know, I asked actually another comic creator, Justin Hall, I said, do you know of any um, Black um, uh, elders who I might interview for this section of the book? And he pointed me directly to Graylin and, um, you know, who, you know, I approached him and I said, you know, do you want to be identified as an elder? And he said, absolutely. You know, the things I've seen and done, the people I've known, um, and the role that I play in the community, um, I absolutely want to be able to transmit that. Um, and so I was so pleased to be able to use his words and Ray, you know, Raymond Holbert. Um, you know, there are a lot of black artists in the Bay Area, but there are more black people who want to make art and don't think it's something they can do. Mm-hmm. So I just love this is a guy who has kept an image diary with words, image and text for 50 years. Um, in addition to the rest of his art practice. And so I just thought, oh, if I can just get their voices on paper um, and their experiences, I, that would be such a nice accent. Um, and not just an accent, but it would just integrate so well with the visual record of six years of, of, of drawing Black elders. Mm-hmm. And I forgot to read the uh, question that you'd asked them at the, for those parts, and it was, when you were young, who were the elders in your life? Who were the important influencers for you? Which we did cover a bit there, as what you're also saying. Um, mm, then let's go with one of the other sections. And the question here is, what is the biggest surprise about the age that you are today? Uh, here's Graylin's response. The biggest surprise is that I'm still learning. When I was younger, I read books about San Francisco leather scene called Urban Aboriginals by uh, George Off Mains, and it's one of the one of the main demanding and psychological leather, oh, sorry, philosophical leather books to read. It talks a lot about the body and the mind. There are parts of that book that talk about being older and still continue to learn. But when I was younger and I read that book, I didn't occur to me that this meant what, what this meant. Now that I'm older, I reread the book and I think now that's what they were talking about because I'm learning so much at age 60. And then Raymond's response was, the biggest surprise for me is realizing that there is so little you can act, actually know and control, no matter how much you do, no matter how much, no matter how healthy your life and your choices, you can still get hit by a car or something else can happen. You'll, you'd be the healthiest person, but it's not just health, but all kinds of other things. You look around and at your, at, at my age, maybe 15, I have been, I, I have no, sorry, I know have passed each year. With some people, I think God, he or she is in much better shape than I am. I can't believe that that's, that happened to them. I suppose the biggest surprise is the unknown or the unexpected. Some things are just chance. I guess it's like the lyrics in that Johnny Nash song. I can I can see clearly now. The rain has gone. I can see all obstacles in my way. Gone are the dark clouds that had me blind. And just looking at some of the portraits, and especially the, I think it's a 155 where you have the man with the key keys reflected in his eyes. It's just a very... Uh, poignant pictures, like especially the eyes being the wind of the souls. And I do strongly recommend if you have a chance, folks, get the book or at least get some of the zines to be able to see these portraits. I know I specifically like uh, number 525 as well. Yeah. That was, yeah, uh, I, oh, go ahead, Dara, please. Oh, I just, yeah, as, as I get older, it's like 
the, the right and wrong ways to do things are, are less important than better and worse. And mm. there are, there are, um, also, I would say, uh, you know, a lot fewer things are set in stone. Like you, we all, you know, I think when I was younger, I came up with notions of comics, how comics ought to be made. And, um, mm. and I still have, you know, I still, I still carry that now. Now it's, uh, you know, uh, you know, you know, like my own personal method rather than something that I, I, I measure the world against, you know, mm-hmm. um, but yeah, the, like you, you, you sort of, you know, sort of wouldn't say loosen your expectations, but um, you sort of have a, have a less rigid um, approach, fewer boxes to place things into and fewer, fewer, uh, fewer steps through which something must pass before it is legitimate. Mm-hmm. Can I ask Tara a question? Sure. Oh, sure. Um, as a as a comic creator, do you feel like you're um, more or less hard on yourself with age? Less, in some ways. Um, I think that you know, I um, tiny by time I was accepted to art school, and I didn't get to go. My parents were were not going to pay for it and they were too well to do uh, so for me to ex- qualify for financial aid at the time. So I went to the University of Kansas and studied among in math. Um, but uh, the, uh, the, there was, I, I really, I had this sort of notion when I was younger that I would have the sort of the literary sensibility of indie cartoonists, but the, uh, but the, what I wanted to also have sort of the craft and the, and the polish of mainstream cartoonists. Um, there's only really one person who had that, and that was probably Jaime Hernandez, and he may still be the mm-hmm. only one. Um, but, uh, um, and Jaime was, is still my all-time favorite cartoonist of ever and ever and ever. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I, I kind of had this notion that that's, that's, that's what I want to do, you know? And um, a lot of the comics that I've done that Your audio are just things that, your audio lost there for a second. Oh, is my audio back? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, uh, the comics that I've done that turned out to have legs that actually, you know, uh, that the, the, the total goal doesn't intimidate me, I guess, are, are you know, usually the, usually the humor ones like Dirtheads and Gooch and what have you, where, uh, you know, it just, you can take it a little chunk at a time and, and uh, like a lot of, like an old fashioned um, comic strip. Uh, in particular, wash tubs and Captain Easy. You start out trying to do a gag a day, and eventually it acquires a plot, you know, and uh, and the characters develop, and there are stories that are, that are told, and uh, and um, and the laughs are just a part. Of it. So, mm-hmm. yeah. Very nice. So, I know we've only talked on at least two sections in there. I mean, we could have easily have gone and talked also about the LGBT section of it, but I think that's a probably enough to whet everybody's appetite to go and take a look at this book, which is not just art, but it's also observations on our lives. So what would be the last things you want to say about that section before we wrap this area? About elders? Elders, or just about this work in general? Um. Well, I'll say, um, I would love to hear what Tara has to say too. Um, you know, for me, um, what I, I, I left the, you know, immersing myself in six, 
you know, for six and a half years and drawing a thousand and one portraits. Um, and then coming together with Tara, and I want to give a shout out to our wonderful book designer, uh, Tyler Cohen, who's also a comic creator, um, who uh, Prima Hood Magenta is an amazing um, uh, graphic novel by Tyler Cohen, our book designer, and it was also the winner of the uh, Bisexual Book Award. Um, and so uh, if you haven't read Prima Hood Magenta, it's about queer parenting. It brings in issues of gender and race, and it's, it's really a wonderful book. Um, you know, revisiting all of these drawings um, with um, Tyler and Tara, and then also with the people who wrote for the book, because you know, was was a really interesting experience. And for me, as a queer Black person assigned female at birth, um, you know, someone who one would say is, you know, triply marginalized, what really came to the fore for me is what it means to create a space for a constituency that is not your own and is marginalized. Um, it was a lesson for me in creating boundaries for myself, um, but also in, you know, my goal in creating this book was for um, black men in particular, um, anyone who identifies as a black man, to be able to open this, feel seen, and close the book and feel good. Uh, that someone has seen black male manhood and masculinity in all, all of its complexity and in all of its beauty, in all the ways you can define that word. So I hope that uh, if you have the chance, pick up the book, um, look through it, and um, you know, let me know what you think. I'm looking forward to that, Tara. One of the observations that Awan made, you know, during her years of putting this together, you know, you know, there would be exhibitions, there would be, um, you know, other other showings of, of the illustrations that she did, um, you know, in, in galleries in the Bay Area, and there were, you know, questionable comments from, you know, from folks who were, you know, often not men and often not black, and uh, so it seems to be that, you know, even black women might have objections to how the black men were depicted. But the people who didn't have any problems with it were the black men themselves. They this this was, I think that's the proof in the pudding there that that uh, this is this project, um, you know, really um, validates and, um, and 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 speaks to the people it's about. Lovely. All right, so we're going to go and wrap that section up, and we're going to have one more section we're going to talk about as my classic questions, myths and realities around mental health, and I think this is a. Un- We've touched on a bunch of things here, but I'm certain we're going to touch a bit more in this last section. So stay tuned, folks, for our last section. And uh, this is Perry Clark. I'm licensed marriage and family therapist here on Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered, here with Tara Avery and Awan Matz. So stay tuned. We'll be back shortly. Our lives and the world around us can get messy and frustrating. Untangle and Grow Counseling's focus is to untangle that mess and make sense of it so you have a good foundation to build and grow from. Visit us on the web at untangleandgrowcounseling.com. Perry Clark offers individual psychotherapy, couples and family therapy, and adolescence therapy from a variety of coping materials and resources. Visit untangleandgrowcounseling.com for more information. You are listening to Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered. 
If you have a question or comment about our podcast, send an email to pclark at untyingknotspodcast.com. That's pclark at untyingknotspodcast.com. And now, back to the program. Welcome back, folks. We are here for our second half of this particular episode, which is actually section four for this longer interview that we've got going on here. Uh, I'm Perry Clark, licensed marriage and family therapist. I'm here with Tara Avery and Awan Metz. And we've had a, a lovely talk about San Diego Comic-Con, the panels, representation, as well as talking about uh, the book that was put out by Stacked uh, Deck Press, which is Awan's book, which is A Thousand and One Black Men's uh, Portraits of Masculinity at the Intersection. So now we're going to go with our classic section here, talking about the myths and realities of mental health. And I'm curious, what do you, for each of you, what do you think are some of the myths around mental health, and especially in relation to either Black culture, Black men, uh, LGBT, and especially our comic and nerddom fandoms as well? So just some places to consider. Well, I have uh, an interesting, I guess, you know, I started transitioning in the mid-aughts, and I was in Kansas, and, and uh, there weren't there weren't a lot of gender therapists uh, running around in Kansas at the time. I, I, I went to uh, online to what was, I guess was then drbecky.com or something. And uh, there were five um, gender therapists uh, recognized in the state of Kansas. I made phone calls. Two of them had closed their practices. One wasn't accepting any new patients. Uh, one, one didn't respond to me and one got right back to me and they were in Wichita, which was a two and a half drive, hour drive away from where I was on the Kansas Turnpike. So uh, that was my gender therapist. So, and, uh, you know, just uh, said that, that, you know, my Kansas experience with this, you know, when you sort of, at the time, this was the, the standard, you, you go to therapy, you, 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 you make your case and the therapist provides you with a letter, which allows you to get hormone therapy and blah, 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 blah. Um, and I did see uh, my doctor in Wichita and had to write a, an extensive personal biography. We went through that line by line, you know, you know, you know, punctuation mark by punctuation mark, you know, and the therapist's mission at the time was to make sure that there were no other underlying illnesses or, or conditions that might be presenting as trans experience, you know? uh, which I don't necessarily think is a bad idea, but it, it, but the, it took like six months in my case of going like more than once a month before so this is, you know, just to give you a feel, this is how I guess it's handled in Kansas. And, you know, and another thing that, uh, that she was very focused upon is that um, uh, she gave me a depression profile first day I was there and I was very, very, very depressed. And so um, it, it, she said, we can't talk about gender stuff until we address the depression profile, mm. which was sort of an interesting, uh, interesting approach. But uh, I mean, I, I sort of said, I understood that, you know, so, you know, after about over a year of uh, seeing her and going through my, my personal biography, I finally got the letter. Um, and then I went to an endocrinologist who didn't have any training for treated, was a, treated diabetes. Um, and, uh, and thus, that was that. And then I moved to California, and I had a very different experience there. Um, I, uh, you know, I, I, I sort of detransitioned slightly until I was more comfortable, you know, running a trucking company, um, and during the great recession, um, uh, then a few months into, you know, a few months after 
returning to California, I found myself another gender therapist. And this woman, of course, uh, you know, you know, I figured I have to start the process over, right? So I see her, I see her for two sessions. She says, you're fine. She gives me a, she gives me the, like, a, she refers me to an endocrinologist in Los Angeles who is trans um, <laughs> and says, you're fine. Go ahead. Like, like do I need a letter? No, you don't need a letter. Just call her. You know, and so that was like, so these are very, two very different approaches to trans, mm. uh, trans healthcare, um, you know, uh, within the United States and Kansas and, and California. Um, and she's still my therapist today, by the way, I've been seeing her now, like in, in October, it will have been 14 years. Um, but, uh, yeah, the, you know, three cheers for the worried well, I guess, or, but I think that, um, you know, the, the myth I think about, uh, there, there are several, but like, for, first of all, that, that there is a, a clearly defined endpoint in a, in a, in a therapeutic process, like, oh, I'm better now. I'll see mm -hmm. you later. You know, so many of those people are back into therapy in like a year and a half, you know, or if not faster. Um, and, uh. I know that one of my partners, she's, she, she just, once again, she, she said, Oh, I got everything I needed. I'm done with this therapist. And then she, you know, and then I'm sure next year she'll be, she'll be looking for a therapist again, you know, just, just see them less frequently, you know, and you don't have to, you know, maybe kind of, kind of there, it's a good way to hear other people's perspective on how you feel and, and what's, what in the circumstances that surround your life. Um, and I, I just, and specifically in trans experience, I know that there is, like a notion it's sort of a born of activism that that having a gender therapist is sort of a gatekeeper -y kind of thing that, that you are are placing the the fate of your gender expression in the hands of somebody else um i don't believe that that is really there's i i think that for those people who can afford it for those people who have have access to it and, and hopefully you know before long people will have access to this you know regardless of 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 income status or, or, or what have you. But for those people who can, who have access to it, I think that as a trans person, having a therapist with whom to bounce ideas off of, off of too. So what do you want from transition? You know, what, what, what is your gender expression? What, what, where does, where does this come from? I think it helps people understand themselves by talking to somebody that's not them, you know, because mm -hmm. trans experience can be very private, especially when you're afraid to come out. You don't know how your friends and, and family are going to respond, and um, having having an opportunity to share these feelings and and these observations with somebody else, somebody who's um, qualified to understand them, um, and is is indispensable. Very much so. Actually, a conversation I was having recently with another therapist. Um, they asked me about my own trans work and so forth because I, I recognize as a cis man. Um, but I pointed out to them is like, okay, I don't do the gender change portion of it. I have other therapists that I direct over. I've direct folks to what I work with. And when it comes to working with trans is now that you've changed in, into this identity that is more you, how now do we deal with you living this life and working through all of that? Because you're going to now spend the rest of your life in this, and this is what you got to get used to. How has that now changed your perspective and your shifts of what's going on? Equally, as I've also said to some of my clients, I like to think of therapy like car maintenance. You buy the new car, you go out and drive it. Sooner or later, you got to come in for the oil change and the tire rotation, the fluid refills. You come in for that, you go back out and drive the car. 
So every time you're coming into therapy, you're coming in for us to talk about changing the oil, doing the fluid changes, rotating the tires with whatever experience you've encountered driving the car that is you. And then at some point, you're going to go back out and do that again. I guess in terms of, um, I mean, this is, you know, I, my, it's funny, my partner is uh, Afro-Caribbean um, and both parents from St. Vincent and the Grenadines and is a licensed marriage and family therapist also. Ah. Um, and, you know, who works with people, um, often people of color um, and often queer and trans folks. Um, and, uh, um, and I will say there's a big difference between having a partner who's a therapist and being a therapist. <laughs> so, I, uh, He's got amazing insights um, that uh, I don't. Um, but when it comes to uh, certainly uh, people of African descent and therapy, um, you know, I'm, there are a lot of, um, I think there, when I look at the larger society and things that people misunderstand, I think people misunderstand the trauma of being um, economically marginalized in mm -hmm. a relatively affluent country. Um, mm -hmm. You know, the first Abroad. Um, well, I was to Canada actually, but the first time I actually left the continent was to fly to South Africa, um, and uh, it was 1994, just after Nelson Mandela, Nelson Mandela had been elected, and you know I first became acquainted with the townships of South Africa, and one of the first things I thought is, you know, compared to what poverty looks like in the U.S., mm -hmm. um, poverty in the U.S. looks like relative financial stability compared to what I was seeing in the townships. But that was in some ways also my lack of perspective and my privilege speaking, because a lot of what people experience is relative. What do you have relative to what other people do? Mm -hmm. um, you know, growing up on the East Coast and seeing, you know, the South Bronx and all of the large kind of, you know, at that time, you know, 70s, 80s, I was in high school. And as you left Manhattan, when we were on a field trip, we'd, as our bus would leave Manhattan, we'd see, you know, large burned out buildings, um, you know, poverty at that time, if you're on the East Coast, looked like tall buildings that lots of marginalized people were uh, piled into the buildings were underserved by maintenance by the city um and then when i came out to california and i saw these neighborhoods that were supposed to be our marginalized neighborhoods and people had yards and trees and i thought this doesn't look like uh economic marginalization to me but but it's all about relative to what is in your surroundings and this feeling of being alone and unseen and unserved by all of that um, and visibility in a society in which visibility matters a lot um, is is traumatizing. And so, you know, that's something I've become more aware of over time. And I think there's a lack of understanding about that, that it's not like the 1920s or 30s when there are a lot of agrarian, you know, subsistence farms, mm -hmm. and that's what America is. Mm -hmm. Now America is middle-class urban and suburban and when you are juxtaposed against people who have and you have nothing um that is isolating marginalizing and it has a really deep impact on mental health mm -hmm. very much so yeah that's one of the changes i know we've i think there's also that struggle because we've got all so many people who still think of the whole ozzy loves harriet period 
so forth, which is still when some of the subsistence farming still was going on. There's a aspect of the world that so many people, I put it this way, as has been often put forth is that the world that most people are trying to teach their children to grow up in is a world that no longer will exist. Mm. By the time the kids are now living in that world as adults, that world, the world that they were being prepared for has already come and gone. Right. Right. One of the more pop cultural observations, like, you know, these days it's, it's sort of standard to have a multiple income household, mm-hmm. you know, that, uh, you know, that, that you don't own a home. You don't have, you don't, your kids don't go to college unless both parents work. Um, just in, in many, many cases. Um, and uh, they look at something like The Simpsons or Married with Children. Mm-hmm. These date back to the late 80s. And these were supposed to be, you know, jaundiced views of, of suburban life and, and not even and not 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 affluence. But these are folks who who are not your who are not who are not Ozzy and Harriet. They're not mm. uh, they're, they're not the Cleavers. They they <laughs> they uh, they don't have the the, the, the the fancy car or the or the nicer things. But you still had one income families, mm-hmm. you know, um, Homer Simpson provides for his family with his with his uh, with his power plant job, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, that and and it's not a question. And everybody knows Lisa's going to co- going to college, you know. Um, <laughs> right. And um, and then uh, you know you look at married with children, you know, uh, you know the 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 dad works as a salesman, but they've got a house that they that they own, and and they have kids, and you know, like, like and access to to transportation and things. And this is this is this is sort of like the biggest shift, the biggest post Reagan shift, you know, is like mm-hmm. the, is that a single family, single family, single income families are, are very rare, um, you know, because of the downward pressure on wages after the decline of unions. And uh, um, the, just, it's, it's, it, it was supposed to be a mockery of, of the suburban dream, a, 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 an inferior version of it. And now it looks like a lost golden age, you know? Mm-hmm. And even more so when you look at a home of color, uh, I know that there was, um, I think it's called the, oh, frick, what was it called? Um, color of Wealth, I think it's called. Or it was either that or it's one, because there's one I was hearing about a while, a while ago during everything that was happening in 2020 about what was also showing up in the tax code. And the different, so much to this aspect of, oh, single family home, you pretty much knew it was a white family. If it's a multi-cover colored uh, home, the tax result, the tax pay, uh, filings would have both parents' income. So you knew that was what was going on. That was a way of telling the two apart. And just how much that is coming. And that also becomes, again, the normalizing too around how is that affecting our mental health? And what also comes up, especially I know as a therapist, is the standpoint of so much of therapy was meant, built around middle America and Bob and Sue or Bob and Jane versus what does it mean to grow up in Baltimore? What does it mean to grow up in New York versus going growing up here, even in the West Coast and in an urban environment? Totally different sets of differences in what's being required, what's going to be focused and and what are people thinking about? I mean, and I do think, you know, the notion of growing up in urban settings, um, now that there's been a resurgence of interest in friends, I could talk to my students about that show again. Mm-hmm. Though they were not really many of them were not born when that show started. Um, but um 
yeah, I don't think they were, but um, that uh, you know, these are struggling young people, you know, mm-hmm. a barista, an actor who doesn't really get much acting work, even uh, a professor um, mm-hmm. of anthropology, not medicine. And they live in apartments that um, are the very, that affluent people in New York would mm-hmm. have to, would be able to afford. Mm-hmm. And so just this idea of what's presented, um, you know, if you, you know, we're such a segregated society in terms of race, in terms of income, also, mm-hmm. um, frankly, increasingly in terms of politics. Um, and so as this continues to uh, take place, um, we learn so much about what other people live like from media from watching Mm -hmm. television we don't you have to go pretty far sometimes to see someone of a different race or a different class so you look at tv and you say oh this is what this is what average looks like and you know if struggling young struggling young urban people um you know with college educations are living in the kinds of apartments you see on a show like friends that gives a really warped sense of what reality is like um, mm-hmm. and that is, you know, in some ways, I, I think that, you know, I'm not a, I am so not a therapist, but what I would say is that I can imagine is bad for your mental health. Okay. Um, you know, just getting this idea that, wow, I'm more, I'm farther behind than I thought I would be. Um, and I think one- the key though, is like, like, like when we watch say the flash or Iron Man, we know that the, the that the armor or the super speed isn't real. You know, I think that maybe we need to like, like, like think when we watch friends, we need to know that this, this, this real estate regime is not real. You know, they, you know, these, these folks cannot afford this apartment. You know, this is, this is like, this is akin to, uh, you know, uh, heat vision and, uh, and, uh, and, 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 and sorcery. It just, it's just, it's just something that makes the story work. It's not mm-hmm. real, you know? Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, mm-hmm. but, oh, very, very much. So even too, especially yeah. in our, as a therapist and a professional, I'm sure your partner can also attest, is when we're watching shows and we're watching how the mental health people are operating, it's like, no, you don't do that. That's completely counterindicated. You would not, I mean, one of the biggest things, I mean, uh, when I was watching um, Jordan Peele's Us, there's a scene in the beginning of it where the therapist is talking to the parents and we can see the, the young uh, Lapita's character in the next room with the door open. It's like, no, you would not be doing that type of consultation with the kid able to hear all of this. I get that it's a cinematic mechanism and so forth, but no, you would not do therapy like that, let alone helping to normalize that these are also careers that people can go into and yeah so yeah as a therapist it's just like it doesn't necessarily help um and then information literacy comes in Mm -hmm. with so Mm -hmm. much content coming at people now um you know helping you know you know people often say you know social media it's bad for teens instagram uh makes girls i don't know what um and you know i think that it's and that's a really kind of an easy interpretation, but I think the the larger issue is that uh, media literacy is not mm-hmm. necessarily foregrounded in in, in education at any level, mm-hmm. but should be at every level, so that people understand that even if it's user created media, it's created for entertainment. It's created to get eyes um, mm-hmm. and and bring the same view to that as you would. If you're watching Adventure Time, 
Mm-hmm. Um, you know, you're watching content that's created to draw people's attention in mm-hmm. some way, shape, or form. Do not take that and weigh it the same way that you would real life. Um, mm-hmm. Even for the media saturated generation of, um, you know, you know, my nieces who are eight and fourteen, um, they have to understand that they're creating stuff, you know, and when they create their own, they're creating stuff for the maximum appeal, not to be mm-hmm. real, but maybe to reflect an aspect of reality, but ratchet it up in a way that makes people want to watch. Um, and, uh, you know, until we kind of confront that, we're still, our society's a little bit behind the technology. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is bad for, that's not great for people. I actually don't necessarily know that I would say Instagram is bad for people. I think having the tools before our education has caught up to making people ready to receive those tools. Mm -hmm. um, That's the thing that's bad for people. See, I'm, I'm skeptical. Like, I think that probably young people know a lot more about media just by having, by being the water in which they swim than maybe some of us, who look upon it as a, as a, as an undiscovered country. And uh, the, you know, the things that we find um, challenging or problematic, they just like, they, they just take for granted. Um, and we don't really have a way of talking about that. You know, you look, look throughout history, every technological or creative innovation has been, been going to be the, is it going to been going to be the doom of the doom of the generation? You know, the, you know, the novel at one time, the prose novel was supposed <laughs> mm-hmm. was, was going to destroy was going to destroy people's you know sense of literacy and you know take them away from poetry and, and theater as, as as they really should have been uh, you know radio television comic books video games mm-hmm. you know movies everything has everything has going to been has 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 been predicted to be the end of uh, of, of civilization end of uh, end of end of civilized discourse and um, uh, you know I, I think that while education is important. Um, I think that most folks who grow up with a certain thing sort of understand a lot of the implications of of the media they consume. Um, maybe that's optimistic, but that's that's my feeling. But yes, I you, know, you can spend too much time in your phone. You can you know you can take things too seriously. And again, the the, the people with the pretty hair and the fancy outfits on uh, on Instagram that's their job. You know, mm-hmm. if your job isn't wearing, you know, wearing, you know, being in perfect shape and having pretty hair and wearing fancy outfits, then maybe you can't, maybe that's not something you're going to do, you know, <laughs> and maybe they know that, you know, <laughs> just, yeah. <laughs> yeah. That is true. When people start writing on slates and, uh, you know, yeah. having written, you know, people said, oh, that's it. We're not going to memorize anymore. Yeah, um, brains are going to go to mush, and that's... well, that that one's true. How many people remember their any, remember phone numbers anymore? You know, <laughs> on their own <laughs> cell phones. Yeah, yeah. But then again, there's also the standpoint of we've got so many more people with numbers we're trying to keep track of, and so many different times of who's hopping their phone from location to location. I actually was talking to a potential client this last week, and the phone number that came up was for Chicago, and I had to stop and ask. Where are you actually located? Before it's like, okay, yeah, no, okay, no problem. You're here in the state. I can work with you. Yeah. I can't work with you if you're in Chicago. There's legal ramifications there. But I think that's a wonderful place for us to go ahead and wrap this charming discussion we've had. I want to thank you guys so much for this and being able to share this, this materials and your continual work in the world, which I wholly support and 
please let me know how I can also continue to let more people know. Thank you. Thank you for having me. That was awesome. Um, yeah. So where can people find you if they want to get in touch and especially get more of the book and such? Well, they can find uh, 1001 Black Men, Portraits of Masculinity at the Intersections at stackeddeckpress.com. Um, you can also uh, find information about Stack Deck Press and our publications on Instagram at Stack Deck Press, on Twitter at Stack Deck PRSS. Couldn't get that last E in there. Limit Character limits on a Twitter handle. Or on Facebook, uh, we have a, a Stack Deck Press page there. Um, you can find my own personal artwork at Tara M. Avery Art on Instagram. And, uh, and you can also find more about Prism Comics, the organization for which I work that supports LGBTQAIU comics, comics creators, and fandom coast to coast at prismcomics.org. Mm -hmm. You can find me at awanmance.com, A-J-U-A-N-M-A-N-C-E.com. There you'll find links to uh, um, Stack Deck Press uh, with the 1001 Black Men book, um, as well as uh, links to the 1001 Black Men online sketchbook project, and also to links to my social media, um, Instagram and Twitter. So uh, um, um, you can always reach out to me there. All right. So we'll try to have all of those in the show notes. So I want to thank everybody and thank these two wonderful guests, uh, especially for sitting through all of this uh, as we've done tonight. And uh, be on the lookout for our next episode here on Voice of America Network. This is Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered. I'm Perry Clark, licensed marriage and family therapist. And just a reminder, this makes it for a great Christmas present for people. And if you can't get it for Christmas... Plan to get it for Black Pride Month in February. So either one of those two times, this is a good gift to give, especially to those that you know that are focused on this. So be well, folks, and we'll be back soon. Thank you for tuning in for Untying Knots, Minds and Souls Untethered. Be sure to join your host, Perry Clark, for another episode on the podcast coming soon on the Voice America Empowerment Channel.